Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I have the the folks from Spiked back with me, Tom Slater, who is the deputy editor at Spiked. Deputy editor, right, Tom? That's right. Good to be with you. And then Ella Whelan, who is assistant editor at Spiked. Ella, thanks for being here. Hi, good to be here. So I think I asked Brendan this, Brendan O'Neill, when I had him on the podcast earlier this year, but how, do you, how are we defining Spiked right now? It's, I think, the first current affairs online only current affairs magazine definitely so the first online only current affairs magazine in the uk uh so we're a magazine of ideas but also of provocation so we write polemics we write essays and we're very concerned with issues of freedom of speech of democracy in particular and i guess it's the former that we'll be talking a little bit about today we're speaking in the greater new york area right now because you are in the united states doing this unsafe space tour where you're trying to bring uh debates discussing important, sometimes controversial topics to the United States. One might call it the new British invasion. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, why are you you guys coming here to the States? Well, uh, there's many similarities between the States and the UK um, for good reasons and bad. Certainly the, the bad is the problem with censorship that's happening both back home and here. And we just thought that there's so much um, argument to be had here and interesting conversations to be had about what the similarities are and kind of what we can bring to the US to contribute to the fight back for free speech here. Yeah, so Tom, what are some of the things that you'll be discussing in these mm. debates and where are they happening? When are they happening? I want our listeners to know about it and if they can attend. No, definitely. So um, we're kicking off this month. So the Unsafe Space Tour is really about trying to make that liberal kind of humanist case for freedom of speech and to try and draw out, I think, some of the nuances which have been a little bit lost, I think, in the last 12 months. Because um, I think there has been a little bit of a danger recently where the fight for free speech on campus has descended into a little bit of a culture war where you kind of have a small group of provocateurs on one side and a small group of very easily offended Mm -hmm. students on the other and that starts to dominate. And then some of what we really wanted to do was to work with some of the great people we've met and kind of allied with over the years in the US and bring them together to try and dig down a bit deeper into this. So in connection with that, the string of debates, a lot of them circle around issues of censorship, authoritarianism, but also the kind of cultural trends which have fed into that problem of censorship. So we're kicking off next week um, on Thursday, the 28th of September. We're at um, American University discussing Title IX, uh, which Ella will be speaking at alongside Nadine Strossen, who I know is a great friend of FIRE, Elizabeth Nolan-Brown from Reason, and Robert Shibley, of course, of of FIRE. So that's the first one kicking off. After that, 2nd of October at Rutgers University, we've got a debate which is all about identity politics. um, And it's the question of, is is this the new divisive politics on on campus? And so speaking of that is, of course, Mark Liller, who has stirred up his own bit of controversy at the moment. Sarah Hyder, who's one the founders of the ex-Muslims of North America, alongside Camille Foster um, of um, the Fifth Column fame, the great podcast, as well as um, Brian Stazkavich, who was a student at Wesleyan who found himself in his own controversy when he wrote a quite lightly critical 
article for the student paper about Black Lives Matter. So those are the first two. And then in November, on the 2nd of November in New York, we're having Brett Weinstein, Laura Kipnis, our own Brendan O'Neill, and Angus Johnson from CUNY talking about the question of, is the campus left eating itself in this new kind of cultural war on campus? And then hotly after that, on the 6th of November at Harvard, we have Stephen Pinker, Wendy Kaminer, Brendan again, and Robbie Suave from Reason talking about, is political correctness why Trump got elected? So we've got a few more in the pipeline, but if people are interested, those ones are open now. They can get tickets. It's all completely free, and we'd love people to come down. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded that Stephen Pinker has a book coming out next year. I think it's called Enlightenment Now or something dealing with the Enlightenment. Uh, and you mentioned that Spiked cares a lot about the humanist case mm. for free speech. And uh, the two are absolutely intertwined, the, the case for the Enlightenment and the case for humanism. Do you find yourself having a hard time making that argument overseas? Um, well, our motto is humanity is underrated. And that's a kind of slogan that pretty much everyone gets behind because you'd you'd be an awful person to not kind of and the idea is really uncontroversial that humanity is a great force in the world that we can come up with great ideas and that we should uh, you know forward that and especially with free speech I think what people struggle with is the idea that actually if you allow people to speak freely it's it's going to be progressive I know that's a kind of weird term here but what we mean by like you know truly progressing politics making better ideas working out different ways to do things that are better than before and so it's kind of a tension between what we see as a very uncontroversial idea and belief sometimes gets us into hot water so there's a kind of interesting tension there Mm -hmm. are you following the campus free speech debates here in the United States a lot I was in London back in May and I was just shocked when I would eat my breakfast in the the Hilton Hotel and the BBC was on and it seemed like all they were talking about were American politics and Donald Trump and I I went to London in part to get away from that (laughs) but it seems like everyone throughout the world is infatuated with it are they similarly infatuated with the culture war debates here on American campuses I think that's definitely the case and I think in relation to the campus question as well as the Trump thing the culture war has kind of gone international now and that's a really interesting aspect to it and I think what's really interesting again as Ella was saying was how much these trends are really similar and it's funny you were talking about enlightenment values as well one of the big stories in the past couple of weeks here which is sort of broken is the, is the protests at Reed College against their kind of mm-hmm. Western Civ um, course which they require all students to take and one of the things that's really interesting one of the things you often come up against is the fact that often an attack on free speech or a kind of censorious attitude amongst students goes hand in hand with this questioning of enlightenment ideas itself so the question of knowledge as well this is something that of course Jonathan Rausch has been saying for many years those two are very much intertwined and I think what we're seeing at Question, uh, places like Reed, which are very similar in the UK, a lot of campaigns to quite decolonize the curriculum, um, is this idea that rather than not only is there a censorious attitude there, but there's also this kind of idea that all different all different ideas are kind of created equal and they should have equal esteem when really it should be about that battle of ideas and that kind of enlightenment pursuit for truth. And I think as one of those ideas has gone out the window, the idea of um, free speech has also gone out with it, it seems like. Another one of your popular issues is Brexit. Mm. And I know... You are um, calling yourselves Brexiteers. Uh, <laughs> do you want well, to laugh? You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I have. I really have no strong opinion on Brexit, and I, I hadn't heard of the phrase Brexiteer until I, of course, encountered it reading your website. But is there a free speech, human rights argument for Brexit? And sort of as a parallel question to that, does it really matter? Mm. Because you say that there's this censorious attitude 
in, on college campuses in Britain. I don't know if it exists to the larger extent within the, the larger British community. Um, but you leave the European Union, you know, some of the requirements that it makes of its member states are gone. It doesn't sound like the culture is one that supports free speech anyway. Mm. So will the censorship continue? Well, I think that's a crucial point. Well, I think us and really the majority of people who are passionate about Brexit, about leave, is the Democrats. Which is the majority of the people, it is right? The majority of the people. You wouldn't <laughs> know, be forgotten. You wouldn't know that reading the coverage. But um, nevertheless, um, it was always a democratic principle. Um, and we've always made the case that while some people want to suggest that free speech and democracy are kind of come into conflict they're actually very complementary you know it's the democracy is the mean through which you protect your freedoms and using your free speech is the way through which you work and contribute to democracy but that being said there are problems at the eu level you know for basically all of the early 2000s the eu was trying to pass um europe-wide restrictions on holocaust denial that's kind of reached a little bit of a kind of accommodation now but those are kind of there there was a story that came out even today we're recording on a monday the 18th um of the members of the european parliament who were trying to censor a um exhibition of political cartoons because there were ones in it which were critical of the eu it was funny it was actually a group of meps from the liberal and democratic caucus within the european parliament who were who were going around with the red pen um so there are these problems it's by its very nature i think a very authoritarian institution but you're absolutely right insofar as the fact that the vast majority of censorious laws that we have in the uk whether it's from hate speech laws through to malicious communication laws which govern online speech all of that is domestic the thing that i'm quite hopeful about is the thing which again you wouldn't necessarily get a sense from reading say the new york times <laughs> coverage of, of the brexit referendum is that it hasn't stirred up this tide of hatred as you might have heard but really a tide of discussion and political engagement which we really haven't seen for a very long time and i think if you're interested in the question of liberty and democracy and freedom there's no better time really to try and reopen these questions because it just seems there's so much more public appetite for that kind of thing and it i mean after the brexit vote happened it really the, the free speech question actually really came into sharp focus because so many people who were virulently anti-brexit were using the argument that you can't say this how how could you have this opinion and anybody who expressed an opinion on being pro-brexit was um either talking about hate speech or was doing something horrendous and there was an attempt to like really censor people so it wasn't just about disagreeing with the vote there was actually the kind of certain sections of the uh, British political classes hatred for free speech came out as well as their hatred for Brexit because the two kind of went really hand in hand that how could these people have thought this and they should be stopped from even talking about it like there's a fair argument to be made about the coverage of, of Brexit in the UK as well that it was very damp to say the least and with this attempt to kind of clamp down about its discussion about it but the positive thing is that people really want to talk about it I mean during the campaign and afterwards people were talking about it on the street that you'd walk down and people would be talking about it at bus stops and so there's kind of been what Spikes is excited about uh, especially about Brexit is that it's kind of rekindled the idea that there should be areas of politics that were that you know are now open and should be talked about and kind of pushing that freedom argument yeah you mentioned the coverage of Brexit now, I'm not too familiar with the regulatory environment overseas, but isn't there a law that requires the BBC and some of the other state-owned media outlets to give equal time mm. to different perspectives on any given issue, or is that only with regards to political candidates? Mm. That is a bit of an interesting question, because broadly speaking, those rules for either the state-funded or state-owned, actually, sort of... Um, 
institutions, the BBC primary among them, there are these rules about balance. Um, and the only thing that was quite interesting is that I think it's probably fair to say, without trying to sound like a kind of conspiratorial Brexit here, <laughs> that they were never really very <laughs> attuned to the public discussion on these kinds of things. And it was actually a really interesting moment in the British media in particular after Brexit happened, because there was this great kind of soul searching <laughs> insofar as particularly institutions like the BBC, they just realised how out of touch they were, I think, mm -hmm. with the British public. They do actually have these kind of balance rules, but I think it's fair to say that broadly speaking as an institution, cultures develop within there. And I think the culture within places like the BBC is generally not particularly hot on um, Euroscepticism or the Mm. or things like that, but I mean, nevertheless. We call ourselves Brexiteers. We have been called Brexit absolutists. <laughs> which we are, Well, I've been we called are, a free speech absolutist. We're completely <laughs> comfortable with. We don't see anything controversial about that. There is that tendency to think if you are really sticking to your guns on this, you must be some kind of like political outlier. Yeah, I, I love how people try and peg you as an absolutist for whatever value you hold dear as some sort of pejorative. Mm. And they think that you're going to try and argue against it, but... No, you know, this is what I believe. Yeah, it's a compliment. But do you find that there are any, um, you know, prejudiced, racist, bigoted elements of the movement for Brexit and that are using, for example, the arguments for free speech to defend their otherwise prejudiced position? I say this some context here in the United States, we're we free speech advocates are having a big problem because you have some, you know, racist, prejudiced movements that want to make those sort of racist and prejudiced arguments, uh, but they know that those arguments don't hold, hold any water with the majority of Americans. So what they do is they put up this, this, wall, this free speech argument to sort of try and give them cover for what they're saying. And it, it's a silly argument because it is a, in essence saying that the, the greatest thing I have for my position is that it's literally not illegal to say. But do you find the same issue with... Brexit, like you hold this position in favor of Brexit because you are in favor of democracy and independence and sovereignty and what else. Um, but there's also, you know, unsavory characters, for example, that are making that argument harder for you. Mm. No, definitely. I think that's all. It, there's always going to be some people at the fringes, right? But I think one of the big sort of contracts of the way in which, especially the kind of media have been covering. But yeah, the at the fringes, Brexit, but right? the min media focuses on the fringes. But that's exactly the point, because I think the media have an interest and have always had an interest, um, especially the kind of like remain backing media, shall we say, with suggesting that, say, someone like Nigel Farage, leader of the UKIP, the UK Independence Party, who is by no stretch of the imagination some sort of neo-fascist. He's a kind of old-fashioned conservative, right? winger type but nevertheless by trying to suggest that he is Brexit as he is Mr Brexit as, as Mr Trump has referred to him um, and then when you actually look at first of all you look at the number one reason why people voted leave in all the kind of election surveys and studies number one principle is not even the question of immigration which isn't necessarily a racial issue but is the question of sovereignty and democracy the principle that laws that govern this country should be made in this country and that we can overturn them so that's one thing and then also a really interesting thing was again in the kind of pre-referendum fear-mongering. There was this big idea that if you vote for Brexit, you're only going to empower those fringes. They're going to come through to the fore. UKIP will gain all sorts of seats in Parliament, all this sort of thing. Brexit happened, and UKIP have collapsed as a political force because the whole point of them, which was voicing an opinion, i.e. Euroscepticism, that no other political party was willing to do anymore, um, was spent. They, there was no need for them, and therefore their membership has dropped. They now have zero MPs, um, and they've just become a little bit of a kind of parliamentary sideshow. So I think, of course, there's always going to be elements within any movement that you might disagree with or you might be slightly unsavoury, but they were tiny. And even in the cases of the ones who the 
the media were trying to present as kind of leading the wave, they really weren't. And I think the kind of aftermath to the Brexit vote has just proved that point. Yeah. And the dangerous thing with that that we always argued is the more that you say that um, these unsavoury characters, and they are few, um, can't speak, you on the one hand give their ideas a real sense of um, kind of power to them yeah. because by censoring them, it's like saying that we can't handle their... This is an argument fire, you know, yeah. very, very um, familiar with, that if you censor things, it only strengthens their position. And also just we were saying can we kind of have some belief in British society that we aren't rapidly racist? That this just, this just <laughs> that isn't That shouldn't be true. a controversial yeah, point. Yeah. But it just isn't true. And so uh, to have a couple of fringe people making these mad arguments is very easily mm. argued against. Any um, kind of, they, they're called the English Defence League, EDL and BMP, these really small, tiny sort of hangover racist groups in the UK. Anytime they have a march, there'll be 50 of them and there will be 500 to 1,000 counter protesters we've so seen that phenomenon here in the united states exactly, too yeah. exactly so it's just the argument i just it doesn't hold any water with me the argument that with you know the u.s or the uk is suddenly this big racist hotbed i mean yeah. it <laughs> just proves that it isn't true well how much does the european union really matter mm. here in the united states we aren't as familiar with the institution and my understanding is that it doesn't have much teeth. It passes these resolutions, it makes these grand pl proclamations, but nothing really ever comes of it. Is that my just uh, you know stupid American misunderstanding of how European politics and bureaucracy works, or is that really the case? Well, it's a pretty mainstream misunderstanding amongst some Remainers in the UK as well. So, I mean, it's fair enough you'd say that. I think people don't fully recognise just how anti-democratic the European Union is. Now, it's fair to say that it's a pretty dysfunctional body. It fails to get a lot of basic things done. It's presiding over a Eurozone economy which is in the doldrums. It's got huge youth unemployment on its southern countries. Um, but nevertheless, it has an incredibly pernicious role in so far as enforcing legislation. Um, so, for instance, if you have the European Commission who are a completely unelected body. Um, they propose legislation. The European Parliament can't. And these things, if they are passed, they do have a bearing on all member states. Some have small opt-outs, but nevertheless, there are huge, copious amounts of UK law, which we're now having to kind of sort through through the Brexit process, all of which was just rubber-stamped in Brussels and then casually passed into law in the UK. That's how it works. And even more kind of tyrannically is the fact that the whole reason the European Union was set up in the first place was not really just a kind of economic trading area. It was really born out of that kind of post-Cold War fear of what happens when you have democratic sovereign states. And there are various things. If you join the European Union, effectively, if you go too far left for what they're concerned about, or if you even go too far right, the bounds for which are actually pretty narrow, if you want to nationalise your railways or you want to control your borders, you're instantly told that you can't do that. There's intense pressure put on you to actually step down, if that actually is the case, and there's been some instances of that. And even people who might get elected tomorrow in some European country on, a, say, a particularly left-wing platform, they would be incapable of implementing that platform under EU rules. So I think the one thing to say, yes, it's a very dysfunctional institution. It fails to get a lot of things done, but what it does get done is limiting democracy, and that's kind of always been the point of it. Do you think there's something to be said, though, for the argument toward European solidarity, given what happened earlier in the 20th century, or do you think there isn't, or that it's just gone too far, that there is, and it's just gone too far? Mm. Well, one of the slogans that we used at the start of the campaign was for Europe against the EU. And we were always very, very um, clear that us being anti-EU was very different to being anti-Europe or anti-internationalist. And one of the most irritating things that happened during the campaign was that the BBC casually started referring to the EU as Europe. 
And we were saying, but it's, it's completely different. The EU is an institution that's been here for X amount of years, could very easily and, you know, should be, as Brexit has shown, be dispensed with. But the idea of having European solidarity and being open and working with other countries is something that Spiked is very, very positive about and, and wants. The point that we are continuously making in terms of our argument for sovereignty is that you can't do that and move to that place until you have a nation that is solid in its democratic understanding, whose citizens feel like they have control of their lives and the laws that are made in their country. When you have that, then you can move to a more um, internationalist and more uh, an outlook like that. But we don't have that in the UK at the moment. That, and you know, the backlash to Brexit has shown that that's still an argument that very much needs to be won. Mm-hmm. We see in the United States a lot of federal regulations dictating what can and can't be said on campus. Mm. Uh, I shouldn't say a lot. We have Title IX, <laughs> which has... Subject created, of our first debate this yes. Thursday the 28th American yes. University, but yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, it, part of it says that, or part of the federal agency that enforces Title IX, this is the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Education, is dictated or mandated that the definition of peer-on-peer sexual harassment in the educational context is, um, you know, any unwelcome remark of a sexual nature. Do you have similar sort of governing bodies or agencies within the European Union or outside the European Union that dictate what can and can't be said on college campuses in England? Or is that, uh, is it more is policy created on a case-by-case or institution-by-institution basis? I think that's a really crucial point, and that's actually one of the interesting things about, about Britain and one of the things that you're really kind of up against um, is that you're dealing with a situation in which all of the laws on the statute book in Britain, domestically, it's less of a kind of European Union question. Um, so the European are, Union isn't really not dictating necess- what not necessarily happens on no. college campuses. It's, it's, it's something which isn't really coming into it, but what in, on the domestic scale... All of the laws on the statute books in relation to free speech are about limiting it because there's no First Amendment, of course. So you have a situation in which any of there are some pretty meagre kind of um, stipulations that say universities should uphold free speech, etc. But those are qualified by the fact that hate speech is illegal. Those are qualified by the fact that you know maliciously offensive, as it's so broadly defined, online communication is something that's illegal. And therefore, there are these pressures on universities to therefore um, have some role in kind of mitigating that. But nevertheless, I think it's also important and that despite that, the real problem, the really ingrained problem, the thing that you run up against most is a cultural one and it exists on campuses within administrations and also within students' unions as um, some of our research for the Free Speech University rankings, our FIRE-style um, league table for campus censorship, which Ella um, leads on, is um, one of the things that always comes up is that student unions, which are kind of like um, student government on each um, campus, are at the forefront of limiting speech. They always do far more of it than anyone else and making the kinds of hysterical anti-free speech arguments you would hear on college campuses over here. So really it is, we have a big problem in the UK with the fact that there is this legislative framework which makes it very difficult to have pure free speech. But at the same time, it meets that culture on campus amongst a small but vocal group of students who want to limit that. And so that, I think, is the primary problem we still face. Yeah, I want to ask about the free speech rankings, but do you see it as a problem that you don't have a First Amendment. I know Brendan O'Neill, when I spoke with him earlier, said it's a good thing because it means we have to make the argument ever more forcefully, but it also prevents your society from having this unifying value that's ingrained in first principles that you can call back to when you're trying to create some sort of cultural identity for yourself. Well, I mean, the problem, as Tom has already stated, is that I think if we brought in something like a First Amendment now, it, you know, 
it might not do any harm, but it certainly wouldn't fix the issue because we have a problem that is so underlying the cultural trends that have well, been Tell there us about for- it. I mean, that's, <laughs> why, that's why fire exists. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's um, yeah, the, there's kind of no magic pill for this um, problem, which is something that makes it all the more, as Brendan says, necessary to argue for, but at the same time, like extremely difficult, mm. extremely difficult. Yeah, I want to ask you about your free speech university rankings, Ella, because you you run it, correct? Mm. And schools are getting worse rankings this year than they did last year, if I'm not mistaken. And worse than they did the year before. <laughs> yeah. Which is different than what FIRE's finding in mm. our own rankings, uh, that schools are increasingly eliminating these unconstitutional policies or these policies that don't fit First Amendment standards, if we're talking about private universities. Um you know, I think it was something like 80% of universities had what we call red light speech codes that you guys also use the spotlight uh, rating system. Yes. Um, and now it's something like 45. And um, I think it's going to be even lower this year when we release our rankings in December. But we still have that cultural problem, Tom, that you were just talking about, that while the policies aren't on the books, there is this sort of cultural censoriousness or censorialness uh, that you know, income kids, a sort of orthodoxy on campus. Ella, what are you finding when you, well, let's start, let's take a step back. What are you analyzing uh, when you're looking at universities overseas? Because uh, you're not matching policies against the First Amendment because you can't. Yes. No, yeah, so, <laughs> or I guess you could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you thought that was worth yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, we really liked what FIRE did with the rankings and we were inspired to do something in the UK because there was some conversation about what the situation was on campus, but there wasn't really, a f- there was no, certainly no rankings and no sort of solid framework to talk about what exactly was happening. So we decided there's 115 universities that we rank in the UK and we decided to look at them on the basis of our own framework that we came up with that was um, l- yeah, largely inspired by FIRE that looked at how um, how censorious campuses was on the basis of within the law how far they pushed it so we understood that there was laws in the UK that you couldn't expect a university to go against the law but um, putting that to the side how far they kind of overstepped the mark where the overreach was and so like fire we use the spotlight ranking and um, this year in february they came out we found that 94 percent of all of those 115 universities censored speech in some way um the year before that it was 80 percent uh 90 percent and the year before that it was about 85 so it's it's gone up and up and up and uh, we're kind of at the point now where we're thinking uh, are we making the problem worse That's yeah, the what gonna, <laughs> what's going to happen and and the really the key things that have come out of that is um very solid examples of universities and students unions censoring newspapers banning adverts blocking speakers much the same as happens here but the interesting thing this year that was different was that um as you know with the ra- the spotlight rankings red amber green there were more um students unions with greens than universities which is uh, the students unions are still very much worse Mm -hmm. than universities but that's interesting Mm -hmm. because that's saying that the universities themselves university administrators are getting worse and are are, you know instilling more censorious policies so it makes you think about the dynamic between student censorship and students sort of agitating these very silly but censorious policies and actually the adults on campus um, enacting these top-down policies. So there's a, there's a different dynamic this year. What, what 
power do student unions have mm. on your campuses? Because here, I was in student government. I was a co-director of legal affairs in my student government at Indiana University. And I very quickly learned that we had no power. (laughs) It's just a way to pat ourselves on our back and put something on our resumes that looks good when we go out into the real world and get a job. But even if I wanted to, I couldn't pass, like, for example, a hate speech code in my student government or student union. And it wouldn't have any sort of effect on the student body without administrative buy-in. Well, I think that's actually a key point because whilst on the one hand you see that student unions lead all of this kinds of censorship, so for a very long time there's been the no platform for fascist policy, which is extended now to anyone they disagree with. Um, there's also all new safe space policies coming in, sexual harassment policies that outlaw things like offensive sexual noises. That's a National Union of Students directive. And what kind of happens, though, is that ultimately their sort of dominion, if you like, is should be quite limited. It should be over, say, the buildings that they run or the events that they run. But what's one of the things that's actually really insidious is this relationship that you get between the university administration and student unions. They are often their primary funders and also what kind of happens is when a controversial speaker is coming to campus the administration is as interested in them not coming as the student union is. Their reasons might be practical and for basis of not wanting to get some bad press rather than that kind of vehement political reason that student unions might have but you get this kind of unholy alliance where they're more than willing to back up the student unions insofar as saying this person can't come our members don't want it etc and kind of let them take the credit and all the flack for it so I think what you get is this really damaging um, unholy alliance between a very risk averse bureaucracy on the administration side and a very vehemently censorious student unions on the other side and that can actually lead to a lot of these things being censored yeah, that, that, that's we deal with the same thing here in the United States. I would say the number one thing driving censorship on college campuses from administrators, I'm not talking about illiberal actions like calls for disinvitations or trigger warning or microaggression policing by students, but you know, straight, da- straight top-down censorship is risk aversion and uh, you know, wanting to protect your fiefdom. Mm. And it's a problem. It's a problem. It's one that's made less of a problem by the fact that we're eliminating a lot of the unconstitutional speech codes that they use as weapons to police speech, but it's still a problem. I want to ask you, uh, let's start with you, Tom, because you mentioned the way in which the word fascist is being used as a a weapon as well Mm. to uh, target those with whom we disagree politically, protected speech here in the United States, of course, but um, we're seeing a rise of this after Charlottesville. but by way of starting, how much was Charlottesville covered overseas after it happened? I know Spike had written about it. And, and what are the thoughts overseas? Antifa as well, which was sort of wrapped up in the Charlottesville events, has been an overseas phenomenon for many years, but it's very much new to us here in the United States. So what are your guys' thoughts on all of this? I just peppered you with too many questions. <laughs> no problem. Well, first of all, this obviously was huge news around the world. And I think what it's one of the problems, which is um, in the kind of current moment where we're in, where you've had various kind of revolts against the political elite, some of them positive, like Brexit, some of them less so positive, like Trump. But nevertheless, there is this tendency, I think, especially um, amongst newspaper columnists, etc., to present this as this kind of global tide of hate. And therefore, things like Charlottesville are keenly of interest. It should be anyway. It was a significant thing and interesting all the rest of it. But there is a particular, slightly unfortunate fetishization of things like that, I think, overseas as well as here, I'm sure, um, to the extent of saying, look, this is what happens when you let people run riot. These kind of weird, dark forces will be unleashed. But it's interesting you say about the point about fascism. And what really strikes me at the moment is how abused that phrase is, particularly in the US. I mean, we've 
there's a very similar experience in the UK, but at the moment it just feels like anyone who comes to campus is labelled a fascist, a white supremacist, with almost no understanding of what those words even mean. I mean, we were talking about... Um, but how new is this? Uh, I remember or Orwell was talking in his essay, um, Politics in the English Language, yeah. about... It's, it's written like 1940 or 1943. At the height of fascism, he was talking about how the word has been used to as a as a weapon to target anyone with whom you disagree. I'll pull up the quote here while you respond, but I mean, it's nothing, it's nothing new, but there seems to be a, a resurgence in this. No, completely. And I think what was interesting was that Orwell was talking about it in relation to especially the way in which um, various people will stick up for the worst possible aspects of you know, foreign regimes by calling something democratic and calling any challenge to it fascist. This is something the old Stalinists used to do, was as soon as you had a democratic revolution, whether it's in Hungary or anywhere else, they would say, we're here to crush the fascists. By that, they mean the people who were agitating for their rights. Right. What's interesting now, though, if it is new, I don't know, is how kind of infantile it's become. Now, this and that's something that you really see on kind of university campuses. And you saw it in the kind of recent um, controversy at Berkeley, where you had the sort of right wing commentator, Ben Shapiro speaking, someone who don't necessarily agree with anything he says. But what was really interesting is you had all these people outside saying, no Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA, which is a big new thing. And this is someone who receives an incredible amount of anti-Semitic abuse online from, from fascist individuals. I think individuals. according to the Anti-Defamation League, he was the, the greatest target of anti-Semitic speech from the alt-right mm. in the United States, or maybe even the world, I don't know. But it just, it just shows you how, in some respects, unthinking and kind of and sort of bratty and silly a lot of this has become and so what's really disheartening about it is that you're just seeing a group of people who of course aren't representative of all students I'm sure the students fireworks with you recognize that the students we work with in the UK we definitely see that but who are just throwing this up as a complete block to understanding a what's going on politically in the country and b a alternative to actually trying to listen to what they have to say and challenge it what i think has become so depressing is that the way in which it's being thrown around is just so ridiculous at this point you wonder how you can even challenge that yeah the, the quote from orwell is the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable <laughs> <laughs> but ella are you guys getting called fascist for the free speech arguments you're making overseas fire isn't getting called fascist mm. yet thankfully <laughs> uh but are you? We don't get called fascists, I think, because it's very clear to anyone who's had any kind of run in with Spiked that we are not fascists. <laughs> <laughs> and that we have a very strong um, and long history of uh, anti-racism and, and fighting for equality. But the thing that does, I think, seem to happen is that you have this interesting argument, especially the, the censorship argument, is that words wound, words are very powerful, words are something that you should really take seriously. And though we might disagree to the extent to which words can wound, we certainly think that words are extremely important. Um, as a magazine, it's, the, it's our kind of key weapon. And yet the abuse of language, and the same as what Orr was talking about, seems so flippant today. Just the idea that you could, a word like fascist or misogynist, um, that is so weighty and means so much and really should only be used for very few people <laughs> who really it can define is used just so carelessly and it's a kind of interesting thing that those who are arguing for censorship and who are deeply afraid of words can so casually use this sort of word bomb like fascist um, to something that really doesn't mean what it says. Yeah, I wonder if the words have become diluted in the minds of most of the public. I My experience on social media is they probably have mm. just seeing how many people on Twitter are getting called fascist or racist and how people are starting to question whether they actually are in response to the people making these arguments. Um, 
but it'd be interesting to do some some public opinion studies on that. But Antifa, I, w- I want to ask you guys about Antifa because Antifa is a was a bigger movement overseas. Yeah, I mean it's been happening for decades, but it's just starting to enter the public con- consciousness here in the United States after some of the events in Charlottesville, for example. There have been a number of rallies in Berkeley in which they've shown up and caused some damage. No, exactly. I think it's important to also make a couple of distinctions as well because, you know, the, the anti-fascist movement historically in Europe, which obviously Orwell was a, was a part of mm-hmm. to some extent, and actually put his life on the line rather than just, um, you know, tweeting things at people. Um, <laughs> that was, you know, it had a, actually quite a venerable history. I think the problem is that, particularly since the kind of 1970s, is that it's become an explicitly kind of just censorious movement. Mm-hmm. It's not become anti-fascist it's become pro-censorship and that's something which is really ingrained in the student culture as well so again you have no platform for fascist in and of itself is a pretty liberal idea against all the principles of free speech that we all care about but again that very quickly expanded <laughs> you know if you think about the way in which that was then adopted very quickly extended to zionists very quickly extended to islamists and now you see people just outside of you know a meeting where a just a conservative is speaking, these labels are being chucked around. But what's kind of interesting as well is that age-old argument about censorship, which is that um, if you censor, eventually it will come back to haunt you. Eventually you'll be the one who's getting bitten by it. And there was a really interesting thing in the UK a few years back where um, the leader of Hope Not Hate, which is a very prominent anti-fascist organisation, he came under a lot of fire from the NUS because he spoke out against Islamism. (laughs) So this is a guy who is by no means has a clean record as far as advocating censorship. I think he's in the process of actually suing Nigel Farage at the minute. But at the same time... It's what was quite interesting about that was, again, if you let the cat out of the bag in relation to these things, it's inevitable that, you know, the anti-fascist of 10 years ago is now going to become the fascist of today. And I think we're seeing that play out to some extent. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned that guy doesn't have a clean record on censorship. Someone who I was just reading an interview with, John Cleese, mm. uh, I, I sent an article that he was interviewed for he was interviewed for vulture and uh he was talking about political correctness Mm. and you know the censorious nature of the culture at this moment and i sent it to the fire staff and then uh, one of my colleagues immediately came back and said no this guy advocated for what was it the media policing laws that you had a couple years ago inquiry yeah Yeah, the levinson inquiry yeah Yeah, i'm sure (laughs) i'm sure but you know i I wish some of these people making these free speech arguments weren't so hypocritical uh, of what they say what do you do you have any thoughts about john cleese i should uh, remind our listeners if they're not familiar with him was the guy involved with the Monty Python series is mm-hmm. uh, famous guys I think almost 80 or over 80 at this point um, but one of your guys is great comedic mm. uh, heroes at least within that cult uh, some within your culture any thoughts about John Cleese? <laughs> about John Cleese. Well, you know, he's a, he's a law unto himself. But what I think he demonstrates is the fact that it's so easy to have double standards in relation to these things. And that's, I think, one of the jobs that is always going to be uncomfortable upon that is that it's something that we've all seen for decades, which is everyone says, I believe in free speech, but... And yeah, you talk about that in your manifesto, right? Exactly. That's one of the core things that you're always up against. It's something that our editor at large, who wrote a great book on free speech, Trigger Warning, Mick Hume says he calls them the buttheads because they're effectively <laughs> these people who on the one hand claim they're in favour of free speech in one area, but when it comes to the press you know, being a bit scurrilous or digging around in stories they don't like, suddenly they're concerned about it. But that's the thing that, as with all questions of free speech, it's just eternal vigilance is what you have to... <laughs> respond to that with I guess and that's where that's where we get the um the label of being free speech absolutists like fire because the thing is that it's never going to be the reasonable people that feel the sting of censorship first it's always going to be the fringes and it's always going to be the sort of your nutters on twitter or uh, racists or whoever they are people who are really pushing the boat out for good or bad and so our um sort of manifesto of free speech no ifs no buts is because we recognize that 
as you know, Farah's argued, if you open the door to censorship, you don't get to close it. Mm. And that's something that's really, I think, blinded the left in the UK and something that we keep kind of running up with them against is that they don't seem to understand that a double standard is a really big problem if for a principle, because if you, you can't say free speech for your friend and not for your enemy, because who decides, and especially the you know, British state, is not going to be favourable to what we believe, um, certainly at Spiked. And so if we want to push our ideas, we've got to argue for other people to be able to push theirs. And it just baffles me that they don't kind of get that. Yeah, I mean, the First Amendment or free speech protections in general are protections for the minority. I mean, you mm. don't need free speech protections to protect the majority. You have democracy <laughs> to do that. <laughs> uh, but it's for the minority, and it's a very ahistorical perspective um, to demand for censorship. I think in America, we too often forget that uh, you know, at a certain point in our history, for example, it was illegal to um, advocate for anti-slavery in Congress. Uh, it was illegal to put out pamphlets that advocated for abortion or contraception. It was illegal to protest the draft in the United States. These are majority, these are minority opinions that were um, opposed by the majority, but and quite frankly, actually, in all those instances weren't protected by the First Amendment because mm -hmm. the First Amendment had no teeth at that point. It wasn't still the mid-20th century when it started to have any any teeth. But do we really want to go back to those days? No, completely. And I think what you've really hit on, just to echo something that um, Ella gestured to, which is the kind of left's blinkeredness on this question, because obviously Spike comes from a left-wing tradition, which is very passionate about freedom of speech and thinks it's really important. But what you have this idea is the idea that Free speech is necessarily antagonistic towards equality, anti-racism, women's rights. And again, that's just ridiculous and ahistorical. And the best, to my mind, progressive defences of freedom of speech is um, Frederick Douglass's A Plea for Free Speech in Boston, mm -hmm. where he makes the point, I'm not going to be able to quote it directly, but that effectively, through free speech, we can banish the auction block and break every chain in the South. It's through being able to advocate your opinions that throughout history, minority groups have been able to secure their liberation. And that's something which is being completely lost now. And I think, again, it's that question of that eventually will catch up with them because it doesn't matter how many times you think we're on the right side of history and therefore everyone else should shut up. Eventually, you're not going to be in the position to shut those people up and then you'll start to realise how important free speech is. I, I love that Fred Frederick Douglass essay because he was writing it in response to a mob that mm. shut down an abolitionist speech in Boston. And he makes the point that, you know, freedom of speech is not only the right of the speaker to speak, but the listener to mm. listen. Uh, but it's exactly what you have today. The content is different, but you have a mob trying to use heckler veto's powers authorized by the government to shut down speech that is held by a minority of people in this or that community. And at that point, it was, uh, you know, speech against slavery. Mm. And too often we forget that. I want to close here by asking you two, what's the future for Spiked? Uh, you're here in the United States doing these debates. You know, What sort of relationship do you have with the United States or do you want to have with the United States? So I think just on that, so with, uh, with the Unsafe Space Tour and with all the debates that we're doing and all the rest of it, and we also want to continue to do more work here editorially and to write and to, to sort of impress ourselves on, on the discussion as much as possible. And I think the reason is it just strikes me that at the moment there is this real kind of transatlantic thing going on in relation to the question of freedom of speech, in the relation to questions of democracy, all of these things we're really kind of interested in. All of those values are really coming 
under attack. And it's mirrored perfectly on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think there's a lot of time to use, again, that word again, solidarity between the two sides, insofar as advocating for freedom of speech, working out what's really going on here, and trying to get to the bottom of why not only is censorship taking place, but why is it kind of culturally acceptable, culturally demanded even. So in with both this tour as well as more editorial work we'll be doing out here and more writing and polemic and all the rest of it is just to contribute as best we can to that discussion which I think is increasingly more of a transatlantic one. If we were to put the censoriousness or the censorialness I, I still don't know which word to use censorious no, exactly. or censoriel I go to the dictionary words, every yeah. time I use them <laughs> and it tells me conflicting things but if we were to put them on a scale mm. the censorial or censoriousness in the UK mm. versus the United States where do you think it's worse? And then as a follow-up question, where do you think there is more hope? Interesting question. Ella, let's, start, let's actually start with you. Do you know what? I think it's hard to tell because while things are different um, in the US, certainly, and there is, you, obviously you have the First Amendment, but also the, especially the campus issues and the campus censorship is, um, dare I say it, much more vicious uh, than the UK in some places and it's more sharp and the, in the UK it tends to be sort of a little bit more underlying that we do have crazy but is that just cultural there. differences in the way we talk in the United States <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I live in New York I'm around some <laughs> brash people you guys I go to London in May and everyone cues very nicely and is super polite you know New York is a brash but it doesn't mean you throw <laughs> no, yeah, paint at a supposed transphobe exactly. you know there's a kind yeah. of there's a, there's a bit of a gap between yeah may, uh, maybe it's just the kind of Brit the British sensibility but no you can be brash but I mean the kind of the the sort of hysteria that's building on campus here is really quite remarkable um, and certainly the UK isn't far behind but in terms of um, where there's more hope I think that that's where we get really excited about this transatlantic mm. thing because it's you know we've we talk about echo chambers we talk about how to break out of the idea that um, free speech is is this sort of thing that's untouchable and the way we do that I think is by working across the pond and and partnering with people and really making this into a, an international national issue that isn't just about this one college campus that isn't just about this one law but it's about what we want to what kind of way we want to shape politics and how people can engage in politics better is through free speech yeah tom like the scale the scale will be your fdr to to your churchill <laughs> <laughs> i think to put it crudely i think the, obviously the question of state censorship in the uk is completely out of hand I mean, i don't know if you guys have heard this story but there's a case at the moment where a youtuber kind of prankster called count dankula <laughs> is someone facing, that you should take very seriously someone you should take very seriously <laughs> is facing a trial for putting a video on YouTube of a pug doing a Nazi salute. That's how bad things have gotten. You know, we could talk about hate speech laws, we could talk about the rest of it. It's wow. dribbling down, down to that level. Question of state censorship, no competition. The question of that problem of the culture and of free speech not necessarily being a liberty that people live and feel and want to defend, I think that problem is completely transatlantic. But I completely agree with Ella. I think it's certainly much more pronounced over here. But the thing I always think of is that it's not going to be long until we get a taste of that as well, it yeah. seems like. I have on my notes here plugs. So what are we plugging? We already plugged unsafe space, but what's the URL for that? It's spiked-us.com or .org? Spiked-us.com. And then that will link you to all of the information about all the upcoming unsafe space debates. And they're free. And they're all free. So yes. all a public meeting. Everyone is welcome to come along, shout abuse. And the first one is next the week. The first one is next week, Thursday the 28th, American University, Title IX, Sex, Feminism and Censorship on Campus, I think mm -hmm. is the subtitle. 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Fire will be there. Laura Kipnis, 
will be there, right? Laura Kipnis is actually speaking at a later debate on is the left eating itself, which is in NYC on the 2nd of November. Gotcha. She is a big part of the Yeah, if this is all confused in your mind, again, go to spike-us.com <laughs> and you can register for free for the events there. You each have written a book, mm. right? Let's plug those. Let's plug those. Um, so my book, I didn't, um, I wrote, I edited it. It was a yeah. collected um, edition. It's called Unsafe Space, The Crisis of Free Speech on Campus. That's where we've got the name for this tour. Has contributions from our editor, Brendan O'Neill. Uh, Greg Lukianoff has a chapter, of course, President of Fire, um, alongside a kind of collection of, again, kind of transatlantic free speech people just to try and put the case for, for free speech. Uh, this is the first public outing of mine because I went live with it last night. <laughs> That's very <laughs> then exciting. How did I find out about it? Did it- <laughs> no, I've been t- I've been talking about it for a while, but it's officially published. It's called "What Women Want: Fun, Freedom, and an End to Feminism," and it is a call for a powerful and um, free speech based women's liberation movement. Uh, and it's all about the kind of problems that women are facing both in the US and the UK in terms of censorship, um, state control, and bodily autonomy. Well, great. Tom, Ella, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Robin. Thank you very much. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. As always, you can email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215 315 0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes in addition to massaging my ego. It helps us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.